Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. The passage that I had Chris read, I wanted to have read as, as sort of a, uh, an introduction, and we will, we will focus on that. Uh, we use that as an illustration. But what uh, passage that we are looking at today is going to be specifically Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. But what I want to do is read it in its context, and so we'll, we'll begin at Matthew 16, verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so he, they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. He was Jesus the Christ. From that time on, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen to you. <clears throat> but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would please help us as we seek to really understand your word this morning and your ways and your salvation and your greatness and the glory of our salvation in Jesus. We pray that you will help us. We pray that you will open our eyes. We pray that passages of Scripture that perhaps we've read for years will come with fresh Holy Spirit-anointed power. We pray that we will be changed. We pray that this amazing news that you have given to the world, the good news of Jesus Christ, will, will so reverberate in our souls that we will be a people on fire for you, a people alive for you, a people deeply in love with you, a people who are using our lives for your glory and honor. Oh, please, we pray, help us to enter into what has, you have done for us this day, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. <coughs> yesterday, <coughs> yesterday was the... 20th anniversary of 9-11, and uh, for those of us uh, here who remember that day and remember the sense of shock that we felt and remember just sort of being glued at our TVs and watching as those towers went down and all that had taken place, um, the reminder of it or the, some of the 20th anniversary stuff that went on sort of brought together and brought back again that sense of, of shock of what had taken place. 
And uh, what we're going to look at today, really, I, I guess my key word here is shocking. We're going to look at uh, three verses, and each of them, there's sort of a shock value with each verse. One of them, Peter, is literally traumatized with shock and, then, and, and such. And so we're going to look at uh, verses. We're going to focus on verses 21, 22, and 23. But let me begin by just reminding us of the context. Remember, Jesus, he brings the disciples to Caesarea Philippi, and he then at that time he asked them, who do men say that the Son of Man is? He identifies himself as the Son of Man. And they say, uh, John the Baptist, uh, come back from the dead. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And that's when Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is who you are. You are the very Son of God. And then Jesus says, blessed are you, you have been shown this, and on this rock I am going to build my church. And that's what we looked at. And then look in verse 20. He commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. At this point, that message that I am the Son of God and I am the Messiah was actually not supposed to be broadcasted yet because of what is supposed to happen next. And then that brings us to what you could describe, as, as it were, as the shocking plan. Look at verse 21. From that time... Jesus began, so you notice here there's a real time frame here. This is a, a moment of great pivot in, in the story of Jesus and in the book of Matthew. From this moment on, something new is now happening. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Now, this is a shocking plan. This is, this is a shocking thing. And it's especially shocking because of what has already what has just happened even in this text. Jesus is identified as the Son of Man. And then he's recognized as the Son of God. And he is, is literally called by this esteem. And now he says to them, and now he, I'm going to show you that I must suffer terribly and I must die. Now, the thing is, the, the, this, this brought so much shock to them that I really, truly believe, and we'll see this not only in Matthew, but you'll see it throughout the book, of, uh, beginning, even the beginning chapters of the book of Acts. At the end of verse 21, when Jesus says, and be raised the third day, bam, that went in one ear and out the other and never registered. That, ne that never registered because of the shock of what was being said earlier. I am going to go to Jerusalem. I am going to suffer many things. I am going to be killed. Now, see, again, notice the, the how, how this, this thing just seems to be jerking left and right. Who is the son of man? He's the son of God. Blessed are you to see this. Now I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. My enemies are going to take charge over me. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. This, this whole thing was just so shocking as, as, it, as it came out. Now, before we... Before we go any further, I want us to take a few steps back to, to just really grasp the shock of what is being said here in just this verse alone. I want us to take a few steps back and basically, very quickly, in the next few minutes, just do a summary of the entire whole Bible message up to this point so that we can understand the shock value to this. And here's what the Bible teaches. Genesis 1. 
A good God creates this beautiful, beautiful world. He creates us. He says, ah, and that was good. Then this day he creates us. Ah, this was good. He creates this absolutely wonderful world and puts this man and woman who are created in his image into this wonderful world that he has created. It's all beautiful. It's all very good. He rests and he looks back and he looks at it. And then this terrible rebellion takes place. This absolutely horrible rebellion. And it's part of a larger rebellion. It's part of a larger rebellion because in Genesis chapter 3, all of a sudden, this spiritual being, this Satan figure, this Satan, this fallen angel, this one who comes, he, he all of a sudden just shows up on the scene to mess up this entire thing. And that's what he does. He messes up this entire thing. And he's part of a previous rebellion, a greater rebellion. In the book of Revelation, it shows him, and with it, he's a dragon, and with his tail, he wipes out a third of the stars of heaven. And that, that, that represents this terrible rebellion where Satan and all of the, his legion of wicked angels who rebelled against God are cast out of heaven. And so now this, this rebellion has come, and now he's tempting, he's tempting humankind to not try God, to distrust God, and they directly obey him. They directly obey Satan, and they follow his, his deceptions, and they rebel against the living God. And so people go from loving God as they were created, Adam and Eve loving God, and delighting in being in the, e in, in the evening, in the cool of the evening with God, to being what Romans 1 called God-haters, to what 2 Timothy 3 called lovers of themselves. To the point that this rebellion becomes so great and Satan has so twisted them in sin to, and they've so turned their hearts away from God that many today, even in God's world, God's whole world today can be summarized by what Pharaoh said when Moses came to him. Pharaoh stood and he folded his hands and he said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And that's the status of the world today. That is the status of the world today. We don't want this God. We don't want him to tell us what to do. We don't want him to direct our paths. We don't want him to apply rules to us. We don't want this God. We are God. This is our world. We are smart enough. We, are, we have enough technology. We have enough ability. We are going to do it our way. No, God, get out, get away. Don't we don't even want to talk about you. And so when God says, do not murder, do not murder. That, and and, and as, as Jesus opened that up, that means don't even hate somebody or call somebody a bad name. We just hate people. You ever notice we fight about everything? We literally fight about everything. We can't get along. We make enemies all the time. We literally fight about it. Think of the stuff we fight about now. It's everything. We fight about vaccinations. We fight about global warming. We fight about this. We fight about that. We disagree with this. Any issue that comes up, we just fight. We just fight all the time. And we hate the people that don't, don't get along. No, God says, do not murder. Don't, don't hold hatred in your heart. We just fight all the time. We just hate people all the time. That's what we do. We said, no, God, we're not doing it your way. How about this one? God says, do not commit adultery. God says that, that a man and a woman should get married, should fall in love 
and get married and commit each other. Say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to be with you for, for the long haul. We're, we're going to go through life together. I'm going to be dedicated and committed to you. Forsaking all others, just me and you, we're going to do this. And God, God blesses that union. And there's a closeness and there's a commitment. And, they, and, they, and they, get, they, they, they lock forces together. And through that, God gives them this wonderful thing, which is their sexual relationship. And it, it deepens their bond with one another. It's, it's an intimacy and a closeness and a joy. And then God blesses that sexual union with children. And God, God gives them these little, these little beautiful little beings that, that kind of look like both of them and, and bring great joy to them. And that was God's plan. That is God's will. And God says, do not commit adultery. God says, don't even think of an adulterous thought outside of this beautiful covenant, this beautiful union that you have with your wife or with your husband. And what do we do with that? We say, no, God, no. We're doing it our way. Get out. No trespassing. And we commit adultery in our hearts. And we, we hook up. We meet people at bars and we sleep with them. Men sleep with men. Women sleep with women. Men who pretend they're women and women who pretend they're men sleep with each other. And, and this is what we do. No, God, no. We don't like your way. We hate your way. Get out. No, we don't want you. Jesus, God says, don't bear false witness. Don't lie. And we're actually at a point right now where we don't even believe in truth. We believe in personal truth. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. We don't even believe in truth. God says, don't covet. Don't covet. Don't covet. Don't, don't, don't get stirred up and, and want something that you, can't, that you aren't able to have right now and, 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 and long for it and think about it and, and worry about it and plan and think so that your mind is just full of things. We say, no, God, no. And we have advertisers now. We have people who wake up every day and go to big office buildings and they have all kinds of computers and all kinds of cameras and all kinds of models and all kinds of musicians and all that to get us to covet. I never thought I'd say this, but I missed the day of cable TV. And I didn't even have cable TV. I hated cable TV. But you know what? We had cable TV. Now we don't have cable TV. What do we have? We live stream now. We have Hulu. We have this. We have that. But guess what came back? commercials we now have commercials and what do commercials do they try to get you to covet they're 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 manufactured to get you to want something so that you will go and you will buy it and it can be anything and everything chips potato chips this some beautiful skinny model which, if she keeps eating them potato chips, she ain't going to be beautiful and skinny anymore. But she's eating these potato chips, and they're so good, and they just taste so good in the bags right there. And she's trying to get you to covet so that you'll go out and buy those chips. And it's not just chips. It's shoes. It's hair color. It's clothes. It's, it's sunglasses. It's cars. It's exercise equipment. It's all of these things we want to covet. We want to covet. And, and, and we do. We, we, we just want, 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 want. And God says, don't do this. And we do it anyway. We develop entire, entire economies based on this. And not only that, we want God silenced and banished from the public sphere. 
We don't want God here at all. We want God out of sight in this modern world that we live in. We want God kept. We'll, we'll let God hang out in little houses of worship and we'll let people have their private moments with God. But don't dare mention his name in public. Don't dare mention his name in public discussion. Don't dare mention his name in public policy. Don't dare mention his name in academia. Don't dare mention his name even in school, even in elementary school, even in junior high. Don't even mention his name in casual conversation. We don't want God involved in this. We want God out. We have no, it, we might as well be putting up signs. No trespassing, God. No, God. God, stay away. God is not allowed. We should be posting them. And what's interesting is, is that we are posting them. And we're posting them all around God's world. God is not to be consulted. God is not to be listened to. God is not to be quoted. God is not to be worshipped. God is not to be bowed down to. God is not to be thanked. He's to be ignored. He's to be silenced. He's to be belittled. He's to be shut away in some asylum somewhere called little public houses of worship. And that's about it. That's how we treat God. What's God's response? God's response is, I'm concerned that these people have enough food. I, I, these, these rebels against me, they, I need to make sure that I'm giving them enough food. They, they need food. And so what does God do? He feeds us. God is good. And he keeps feeding us. And he gives us food. And he gives us clothing. And he gives us rain. And he gives us sunshine. He's concerned that these rebels are getting hungry as they're nailing up the God stay out. No trespassing God signs. He's concerned that they're hungry. And he feeds us because God is good. God blesses us with health. God blesses us with safety. God blesses us with families. God blesses us with jobs. God blesses us with prosperity. God blesses us with fruitful seasons. And God is such a good God. He keeps pouring out his love upon people who want to have nothing to do with him and keep putting up no trespassing signs against him. God keeps, they're not allowed to talk about him publicly, but he keeps feeding and giving them health and finding loving ways to provide for them. Why? To bring them back to himself. Why? Because he's such a good and loving God. In Acts chapter 14, uh, Paul and Barnabas were preaching in Lystra and a miracle happened. They healed somebody and then they wanted to worship Paul and Barnabas. And this is what goes on after that. In saying, this is Paul then speaking and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men the same nature as you. They wanted to worship them as gods and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself with witness in that he did good. See that? He did good 
to all those generations that were going and walking in their own ways, he did good. And he gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. This is a God who loves his enemies, who's good to his enemies, who's good to those who want him out of his world. He keeps entering into his world and providing for them. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 4, it says this, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God does good to us. He does good in order that we would turn back to him and we would know him because God is loving, God is good, and God loves his enemies. And then rather than get angry with us, and rather than destroying us, God moves to reconcile the world back to himself. God moves by grace to make us his friends again. And God does this in a shocking way with a shocking plan. And that shocking plan that he is going to do this is he's going to send his son into this hostile, rebellious world. He's going to send his beloved son into the midst of his enemies, into the midst of people who have said, we want you out. We don't like your commands. We don't like what you do. We don't want to acknowledge you. We don't want you in any conversation. We want out. We're going to run our own way. This is our world. And we and, and, and God sends his son into the midst of that rebellion, into the midst of that hostile world. He sends his son and he sends his son into the world, not to judge the world. He will do that eventually, but he's not going to, to judge the world. He sends his son into the world to die for the world. And he sends his son to die on behalf of those sinners and rebels who aligned themselves with Satan and rebellion. Why? Why did he do this? Why would God? This is shocking. And the answer is, is because God is rich in love and in mercy and in grace. So again, just, just capture the jarring jilts of this text. Verse 13, who do men say the son of man is? Verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be killed. This is shocking. Why would God even do this? Because God is a God who is rich in mercy and grace. Then look at verse 22. Peter is shocked. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. It's a double negative in Greek. Absolutely, positively will not happen to you. Now, there's a part of me that really appreciates what Peter did here. It's, this, is, this is really an amazing thing, I think. Peter is showing his love for his Savior. Peter is showing his concern for him. He wants to protect him. He said, this is, this is crazy. You're Messiah. We just identified you as the son of God. You didn't come here to, to, to have all this horrible stuff happen to you. And then with a, sort of a vehemence, he says, this will not be. He's falling on his own manly strength and his own manly courage. This 
will not be. I cannot allow this to happen. And dear friends, I think that's the exact same thing that happened in heaven when the myriads and myriads, 10,000 times 10,000, thousands and thousands of angels for the first time realized that he came to earth to die. I feel that in heaven, what happened at that point was all of those angels went to their swords and pulled them out and said, this will never happen. And God said, no, no, this is my will. This is my will. This will happen. And I think there's something very heroic about what Peter is doing here. Very heroic. And yet, it was very, very wrong. See, in another sense, Peter is completely out of step with God. Completely out of step. Completely out of step with what he should have understood from the Old Testament. The sacrifice lamb the suffering Savior. What was God's plan? Peter was completely out of step with it. And even though now in so many ways his heart is in the right place in some ways, he is actually opposing the plan of God right now. He's opposing the plan of God right now. And Jesus in his humanity does something shocking in the next verse as well. And that's Jesus' response. It's shocking at first when we hear this. But he turned and said to Peter. Now, this is interesting. I don't really understand the dynamics of this. Notice the, the dynamics here. Verse 22, Matthew tells us that Jesus, that Peter takes Jesus aside publicly. So there's a sense in which he takes him aside publicly. But as G, Peter is talking, somehow or another, either before Peter is talking to Jesus' back or something. Jesus, or he hears Peter start and Jesus starts walking away because what's interesting is in verse 23, Jesus now turns. He turns to Peter and he says to him. So you get this almost turn and glare at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. One commentator uh, uh, talking about those words, get behind me there, actually put it this way to try to capture the vehemence of how that is written. Get out of my sight. Get out of my sight. Now think about that, dear friends. This is Peter trying to protect his, 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 his best friend. Get out of my sight. Then he says this, calls him Satan. Get out of my sight, Satan. You are an offense to me. Now, that's the word scandalon, scandalon. But the word actually means, the word actually means to, a, it's a, it was initially used of a trigger. Think of the, think of, remember when you were a kid, well, maybe you weren't as crazy as I was, but you, you had a stick and you had a big rock there or something and you had some bait under there and you were hoping that a squirrel or a chipmunk would go under there and then you pulled the stick away and it would go down and it would, it would um, injure him slightly. <laughs> that stick is, was the, that, that idea of a triggering a trap or a snare was where the word scandalon came from. And it means to entrap somebody, to draw them into a snare or a trap. And he says, get out of my sight, Satan. 
you are entrapping me. You're ensnaring me. You're trying to ensnare me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. Think about this, dear friends. Why did Jesus respond that way? Why so hard? Why so harsh? Well, again, look at the amazing text that we have here. In verse 13, Jesus is the son of man. In verse uh, 16, he is called the son of God. Jesus is both son of man, son of God. He is fully human and fully divine in one unique person. And we have to understand at this point, the fully human Jesus had all of the same human desires and passions that we had without being sinful. And part of being human is self-preservation. Part of being human is is self-protection. Part of being human is the dread of death because death is a curse. That's part of being human. But Jesus was called to obey even to death. And in Philippians 2.8, it says this, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was called to a horrible horrible death. Now, in his perfect humanity, in his full humanity, Jesus was fully human, dear friends. He's son of man and son of God. He's fully human. In his humanity, when did it dawn upon Jesus that he was going to die for the sins of the world? When did that dawn on him? He certainly didn't know when he was two. He didn't know when he was three. The earliest that we have of knowing of Jesus is he's 12 years old and he's in the temple and he's talking there and he identifies God as his father and, and such. And so he knew, he knew. But at what point did it enter into his human consciousness that he would be the sacrifice for the sins of the world? That he would die under the wrath of God? That he would be rejected by the Father and all of our sins would be laid upon him, and he would die an agonizing death on the cross on our behalf. And that had to include for him then obedience. Obedience. What I'm saying is this. As Matthew is now hinging toward the cross, it is hinged, as it were, from Bethlehem to this point, from his beautiful, amazing birth and such. It is now hinging and going straight to death, to the cross. And as it is hinging there, Jesus is feeling the pressure of it. Jesus is feeling the pressure of it. And Jesus is now moving toward Jerusalem. He is heading toward Jerusalem. The whole focus is going to be on that. He is heading straight into his death. He is heading straight into the curse. He is heading straight into rejection from the Father, rejection of the people. He is heading to the place in which he will be crucified. And it's wearing on him already. It's wearing on him. He is acting in absolute obedience. He doesn't want this to happen, but he is obeying the Father because it is the Father's will, and he wants the Father's will. He is suffering. He is silently suffering. He is forcing himself. He's in torment. It is difficult and Peter pushed a button at this point. Peter pushed a button and said, no, 
This isn't going to happen. We're going to fight. We're going to stop. We're not going to let this happen. This is horrible. You're not going to die. You're not going to be crucified. That's not going to happen. And Jesus hears in that Satan speaking to him. Satan speaking to him. Don't do it God's way. Do it your way. Do it your way. The same slimy, stinking voice that said to Eve, God is holding out on you. God is not a good God. Take that fruit. Eat it. The same slimy, stinking voice that said to Jesus when he was hungry and starving in the wilderness, turn this stone into bread if you're the son of God. Turn this stone into bread. Forget God. He's starving you. Turn away from him or bow down and worship me and I'll give you all these things. Bow down. All of those terrible, terrible, wicked promises that Satan was making. Jesus sees that again here now. You're not going to die. We'll arm against you. We'll go into Jerusalem. We'll stop this. Jesus says, shut up, Satan. Shut up. You have the things of man at mind, not the things of God. I'm heading to Jerusalem and I'm dying for my people, for my sheep, in obedience and love for my Father, I am mindful of the things of God. You are not. You are not. This is a shocking passage of Scripture, dear friends. Jesus is going to lay down his life for rebel sinners who said, No, God, we don't want you. No, God, get out of here. He's going to lay down his life. I hope you see this text. I hope you see the struggle that Jesus is going through. The pain. The forcing himself to do what the Father tells him to do. This is all going to come to a head in Gethsemane. If it's at all possible, please no. Please no. Please no. Nevertheless, I love those words, nevertheless, not what I want, what you want, what you want. I love you more than me. The Son of Man lays down his life for the sheep. Do you know that Jesus loves you more than he loved his safety and security and comfort. Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross for me. That's what you can say, dear saints. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was willing to go to the cross for me, to suffer the wrath that God had for rebellious me to suffer it on himself because he loved me. And dear friends, that was so incredibly hard. Jesus, for all of eternity past, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. From all eternity past, Jesus had this intimate, delightful fellowship with the Father. The Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father. And on that horrible cross, the Father turns, his, turns away from him. 
and pours out his wrath upon him. And Jesus went through that for us. That we would be reconciled. And nothing was going to stop him from doing that. Again, look at verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You're a stumbling block. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of man. No, Peter, God is about to redeem a people for himself. That's what God is about. That's why we're going to Jerusalem. Dear ones, by way of application, I think we should just worship God. I can't think of any other application, but thank you. Praise what a good God you are. You should have just destroyed this ugly planet and taken Satan and the, and the demons out with us. But instead, you reconciled us to yourself. You fed your enemies. You clothed your enemies. You love them. Think about your own personal testimony, dear ones. What were you like before Christ? Why didn't he just zap you at that point? Why didn't God just take you off the, off the face of the earth? Why didn't God just silence us? Why didn't God just shut us up? We were so arrogant. We were so godless. We were so self-centered. We were all about us. And God didn't do that. He kept reaching out to you. He kept calling you. He kept bringing you the gospel. He kept bringing you to himself. You were his enemy. And he brought his enemy kicking and screaming. And by his grace, he overwhelmed your rebellious heart. And he saved you. This God is to be worshipped and he's to be loved with all of our hearts and thanked for what he has done and glorified. Dear ones, is there anybody here who is still rebelling against this God? Who is still saying to this God, stay out, stay away, no trespassing God, get out of my life. I'm doing it my own way. I'm doing it the way I want to do it. No, God, no, you get out. Oh, dear ones, is there anyone here that's still like that? Is that what's going on in your life right now? Oh, do you not see, do you not see how foolish that is? Do you not see you're being Pharaoh? Who is Jehovah that I should follow him? Oh, dear ones, please, please stop your rebellion. Stop. Stop your rebellion. Jesus himself is calling you to lay down your arms, to surrender, to unfold your stiff arms, and to repent. He's loving you, and he's calling you, and he's saying to you, I'll give you everlasting life. I will forgive you. I will apply my cross to you. I will save you. I will make you child of the living God. I will do this. Stop rebelling. Stop running from me. Stop. Turn. Come. Believe. I will accept you. I will make you, you, you a child of the living God. Oh, dear ones, hear his word. Hear his word. I don't know how old you are. I don't know how, care how young you are. He's calling you now to come into a relationship with him. He's done all of this so that you could come and believe. Turn away from your sin. Turn away and believe and trust and come to this God 
who is so full of grace and love that he didn't give up on us, he sent his son. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, we just want to pause and just worship you and thank you that you came to this earth, that you took on humanity, and then you died. You suffered the wrath. You suffered our punishment. You gave yourself for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we look around and we see so many who are still saying, God, get out of here. Get out of our public discourse. Get out of our country. Get out of our lives. No one can talk about you. We see so many who will perish. Oh, please, we just pray. Pour out your spirit. Please save. But we want to pause and thank you because we were one of them. And it's only a miracle of your grace and of your sovereign call that we are here this day. We thank you that you've saved us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've given us new life. We thank you for your mercy. And we thank you that you died in our place. And we thank you that you took yourself to that cross against everything that you were feeling. You obeyed, even to the point of death for us. All we can say is thank you. All we can say is that we're humbled and all we can do is dedicate ourselves to just glorifying you. Here we are. You gave your life for us. We give our lives to you. Use us, we pray. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen.